Well, we live in a, a frenetic, busy world, don't we? From email uh, and inboxes to text message things to notification on phones to constant radio adverts telling you uh, what you need to have, piles of mail to sort out. Am I depressing you enough yet? Um, we've even got apps, don't we, that tell us how like, many steps we should take and make us feel bad when we're not taking those steps. I laughed at this quote recently and then was utterly depressed by it being true of my own experience. People are persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't care about. That's by economist Tim Jackson. Many people are in debt, overworked, constantly connected to their work, um, all being sold this expectation that it's all supposed to just fit together neatly and tidily and easily. All this while a pandemic kind of continues on longer than we'd hoped for, we'd hoped to have moved on from. Constant activity, tiredness. I wonder, do you need rest? The good thing is that we're not supposed to deal with this on our own. We're not the first to deal with this. God knew our inherent struggle with this because the Bible has a thread about rest that weaves in and out of the main storyline. It's actually one of the main battlegrounds uh, between Jesus and the religious uh, leaders of his day. Our passage takes place on the Sabbath, a couple of Sabbaths actually, and Sabbath is this time from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset for, for the Jews. It's covered in the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. I wonder if you remember, I taught you about the Ten Commandments recently, right? You shall have no other gods before, uh, you shall have only one God, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol, um, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall um, have a Sabbath, a rest, and you shall honor your father and mother. I'll stop there. I see some of you remembering six. Do not murder, right? Good. <laughs> this is the fourth one. We're to take a Sabbath weekly. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, for on the seventh day the Lord rested. Sabbath was a massive identity marker for the Israelite people, and it still is. From the time that I spent in Jerusalem a few years ago, Sabbath felt both expressive and bountiful on one hand, represented by this lovely challah bread that they had every, um, every Sabbath, every Friday, but strangely repressive and burdensome on the other hand, kind of represented by the elevators that stopped on every floor on the building um, on Fridays, uh, so you wouldn't have to work by pressing the button. Now, there's a kind of tension here that, that we see in our passage. It's been around for a long time. We see it between Jesus and the religious leaders in our passage today. So we're going to look today um, at the test of Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath and the life of Sabbath as well. So shall we pray together as we begin? Let's pray to God um, as we come to our time now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're good. Your love endures forever. After those six days, you said these things were good as you created, and you said that they were very good. You rested. You should enable us to see what that looks like for, for us, what that means for us today, to trust you, to trust that we can rest um, because you call us to it, and uh, enable us to see that in Christ by your Spirit this morning, we pray. Amen. So firstly, the test of the Sabbath, the test of the Sabbath. First, it's a test from the Pharisees to Jesus and his merry men, his hungry merry men. 
verses 1 and 2. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in our hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, travelers were usually allowed um, to help themselves to satisfy their hunger, according to Deuteronomy 23. So the objection here from um, the, the religious leaders is not the action itself, but the fact that it was performed on the Sabbath. Apparently, uh, one commentator says that there were four ways in which um, the, the disciples potentially broke the rules here, uh, both in terms of picking it, getting rid of the husks, eating it. Um, there was lots of ways in which they were doing it. They were breaking the rules. I hope it was worth it for them, for those little bits of uh, food that they got. For the Pharisees, it was a test of the law, you see, of how serious you were, how orthodox you were, because the law brought purity to the nation, which would allow Israel to be freed from their Roman oppressors and to be saved and redeemed by God. It would earn, in some ways, their, and enable uh, their freedom, uh, their restoration. They were doing their part. And so they were like the, the religious enforcers of the day. Um, they watched people. They followed people, evidently. Right? It looks as if they just kind of popped up in the fields. Oh, what are you doing? Why are you eating the corn? This meant that anyone who didn't follow them or, or follow the rules was, was ruining it for them and for everyone else. It reminds me of, of, of the joke of the balloon child who takes a pin and some needles to school and it ends terribly. He's called into the balloon principal's office and the balloon principal tells him, you've let me down, you've let the school down, you've let your parents down and you've let your friends down, but most importantly, you've let yourself down. Thanks, a little groan, that's better than nothing. I thought it was just gonna be nothing for a minute there. So thank you for just those groans. I make light of it, um, but it's something serious, isn't it? They were, letting, they were being let down by everyone else around them, but they wanted to lift everyone up and follow the rules and make sure that they were obeying and following all the meticulous rules that there were so that they could find that purity, so they could find that redemption as a nation. And so because of this, you'll see from the, the, the past few weeks, um, they balk at paralyzed men being healed, tax collectors being transformed, withered hands being restored. They kind of resent it. They'd rather do evil and destroy life, but keep up the legal facade than to save life or to do good or to, to love. They don't seem to quite be able to kind of connect with some of the, the crazy things, the wonderful things that are happening. They're striving, it seems, underneath their living. And so they police, they pressure, they spy. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? It's a constant test. So let's move on to verse 6 and 7. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And so Sabbath here is used as a test by the Pharisees, but actually Jesus ultimately tests them with it. Jesus knows the accusations. He knows what they're thinking, and he stands right up in the face of them. He asks the man with the withered hand, he tells him to stand up and says, I ask uh, you, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? It's all about what's legal, what's lawful on the Sabbath. The Pharisees look at him. It's a staring match, did you notice? Jesus glares at them and says to the man, stretch out your hand. 
and he did so, and his hand was restored. For the Pharisees, the issue of Sabbath was one of legality and of practice. They had missed the point. For Jesus, it was a question of authority and identity and of love. Would they believe what the real understanding of Sabbath and rest was and accept the real notion of the God behind Sabbath and rest? That the Lord of the Sabbath was really stood in front of them? That's the test of the Sabbath. Now, let's move on to the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's at the center of this passage that we have here today. He says he's Lord of the Sabbath. Now, to kind of understand what he means by this, let's go back a little bit. Genesis 1. Remember where Sabbath originated from. Genesis 1, God rested. God rested. It wasn't because he was tired. He didn't need a snooze. He didn't need a nap like I've done recently in recent days with Evil Hope getting up at 5 in the morning. He, after he created each day, at the end of each day, he saw that it was good. After each day, he saw that it was good. And on the sixth day, after everything he had made, he looked and saw that everything was very good. And finally, he rested on the seventh day. It's the rest of the Lord. When he rests, he is taking in his own awe. He rests in wonder, uh, satisfaction and awe. He comes up with this idea of Sabbath, of rest, of enjoyment, of delight. And in Sabbath, people are invited into this rest. Um, the Ten Commandments I've referred to already, he says to them, I've redeemed you, I've saved you from slavery, you're free people now. Now rest. They're commanded to rest. It's like forcing children to nap. They don't quite know how good it is that you're giving them a gift of napping and they fight it. And you think to yourself, if only someone else is forcing me to nap. God's people are invited to this kind of rest. It's a gift to be enjoyed. It's something offered to them. Slaves don't rest. They don't get days off. Now, what's interesting in our passage is this. Jesus seems to set aside the Sabbath requirements very quickly. He doesn't really make any arguments, does he? He just tells a story about David. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who are with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. He's saying lots of things here, isn't he? He's saying he's the great, greater David, the, the great high priest. Um, he's fulfilling so many things in this passage. But the argument here is, is this. Don't you remember this happening before? If you condemn my disciples on this one, you also condemn David and his men. You like David, Remember? Are you going to do that? So Jesus is saying that human need is more important than, than certain parts of this ceremonial law governing worship and Sabbath. That's what happens in that particular story. But we should note that Jesus doesn't do this anywhere else with the moral law. Right? There's a difference between the moral law and the ceremonial here. He's doing something um, and setting it aside in some ways, and he's doing it quite quickly, and we should take notice of that. Nowhere does he say... Oh, you are in a hurry, so stealing is okay. Or you are in another country, so worshipping an idol is no problem. But with the Sabbath, Jesus seems to be saying there's something provisional about the Pharisees' regulations and demands. There's something temporary about it. And he uses this enigmatic phrase, doesn't he? The Son of Man 
is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, he's talking about himself here. He's not just talking about uh, people in general. It's not a general reference to humanity, but a title about his authority. Who can reinterpret and recalibrate something divinely instituted? When Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying something remarkable, amazing, astounding. As he reframes it, he's not setting aside or saying that's no longer relevant, but he's saying this, I am the one all Sabbath law is pointed to. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I redefine Sabbath and rest. I am the Lord of rest. It's another way of saying to us, to those around him, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Deep rest, rest for the soul. And so if we want to rest, if we want to stop striving underneath our living, we have to go to him. Would we let him define rest? And if we think that we have got to him, we have gone to him, but we don't have rest, perhaps we don't fully know what we have in him. This is a challenge to us. My childhood narrative is this, that, that good isn't good enough. I heard that several times in, in, in my childhood, and it's something that kind of rings in, in my own um, person. I fear that I'm not enough, so I strive. By performing with perfectionism and procrastination, and then ultimately with pressure and pretense, I strive some more, and I start at the beginning all over again. This leads to contempt, and underneath that contempt um, is fear. I wonder if that's what's going on for the Pharisees here. There's a contempt that they have for others, which I think mirrors their contempt that they might have for themselves, and a fear that, that they can't trust God, that God's not really going to redeem them. He's not really going to save them. I wonder what your striving, your narrative is, what ways... You're not able to rest or you struggle to rest because of, of those um, narratives that you have in your own life that you haven't kind of named and processed. For some of us, it's trying to be enough. For others, it's trying to be someone important, something important. It can happen in religious settings. If I'm good, God will give me uh, what I need. God will bless me. But it can happen in non-religious settings too. If I'm successful, my life will be worthwhile. Then I'll be somebody. Ken Shigematsu, a pastor here in Vancouver, um, in, in one of his books, says this. Studies have shown that it's possible to sleep, but if we don't experience REM sleep, the deeper rapid eye movement sleep, we don't feel fully rested. This tells us that it's not just sleep, but the quality of sleep that counts. In order to deeply rest, um, we need more than simply the absence of work. We need to experience internal rest, and so it is with our lives. We do not rest... Um, we need deep inner rest, rest from the inner armor that says we are defined by what we do, what we have, what we don't have, or by what others think of us. Partly, part of the reason we can't truly find rest is that we are trying to validate our existence to ourselves and to other people. To experience full rest, we need to be free from the voice of self-condemnation, that self-contempt that means that we judge others and actually it's shining a light on me. When I'm frustrated and angry with those closest to me, it's telling me something of myself, isn't it? And Ken gives uh, the illustration from the film Chariots of Fire. 
Um, it's an old film. Um, you, some people are maybe too young to have seen it, but it's, um, the Scottish people like it, right? Because it's about a Scottish legend called Eric Liddell. And for a contrast to uh, athletes, first is a Scottish uh, person, Eric Liddell, who, though he wants desperately to win a gold medal at the Olympics for Scotland and Great Britain, we don't have many of these in Scotland, you see. He actually refuses to run his favorite event, the 100-meter dash, um, on the day designated as his Sabbath, even though he was favorite to win, because he had a higher prize and could resist finding identity in his running. Right? He, he refused to, to go for the 100 meters, uh, which was his best event, because he thought, well, I'm not going to run on Sabbath. I have bigger things in mind. Um, I know that I don't need to do that to prove myself. He was not defined by gold, silver, or bronze, but he found his identity in who he was as a child of God. Now, in the film, there's another character called Harold Abrahams. He runs the 100 meters too. He says this, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. He's trying to prove himself. He's trying to make sure he's worth something, but even a gold medal is, is not enough for him. Can you see the difference? I wonder if you relate more to Harold's or to Eric. Do you say, God made me fast and when I run I feel his pleasure? Or do you say, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence? I know which one I find more relatable. Jesus says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees misunderstand Sabbath because they misunderstand the Lord of the Sabbath. And so like Jesus' healing of the paralytic man in Luke 5, he heals, but the healing is part of the bigger picture of his ability to forgive sins. And now in our passage, Jesus heals this withered hand, but the healing is part of a bigger picture of his authority over the Sabbath. Sabbath. He heals. He says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, and then he shows that he is through this healing. On the face of it, he is bringing life to the seemingly deadened hands of this man, on a deeper level, he's reframing and refreshing huge parts of the law of Moses to bring life and hope to lives, to people, in love, families, and marriages, and situations, and, and bodies. He's bringing healing. He's bringing life. He's bringing his life. The Pharisees are concerned about Sabbath practice and ask questions about why and what Jesus is doing and his disciples. But Jesus says they've missed the wood for the trees. He is concerned about Sabbath rest and answers questions about his identity and who is the Lord behind the Sabbath. And that's what the invitation is to us. Where will we find our rest? What is our frenetic striving underneath our living that we need to name and to see the emptiness of? Where do you take your restlessness? Do you numb and medicate to deal with the present? Do you drown out the pain of the past? Do you relentlessly plan for the future to kind of make the present feel more bearable? I've got a friend who is going back to studying because he wants his gravestone to have doctor in front of his name. No word of a lie. I was speaking to him about it fairly recently about it. Literally said, if I know that that's the case, I'll die happy. Some of you are here and you're like, seriously, it doesn't do that. 
He's an amazing, friendly, funny guy, loved by many, but he can't stop that striving underneath that living. I walk through a cemetery fairly regularly as it's quite near us. Funny how many kind of unreadable tombstones there are. He wants those two letters and a dot. Two letters and a dot. That's what he's pinning his restlessness on. If I just get that, I'm going to go back to school, I'm going to study, I'm going to do a PhD of some sort, I'm going to get this doctor, and I'm going to feel like I can rest. That's what he's pinning his restlessness on. What are you? Augustine from the the 4th century says this, God, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until it finds rest in you. Will you want to find that rest in him? How is this possible? How is this rest possible? Look at verse 11 with me. After all this happens, after all the Sabbath chat, and the withered hand is miraculously restored, we see verse 11. The Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. It wasn't just about Sabbath practice. It was about who the Sabbath Lord was. They thought if they killed him, this would show that this Jesus of Nazareth was full of hot air. He was talking rubbish. He didn't know what he was talking about. If they managed to kill him, they would need to believe what he had said of himself. But here's the irony. Their plans to kill him actually makes him Lord of the Sabbath. Their killing of him makes Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath. Because by killing him, the Lord of the Sabbath takes on cosmic an infinite restlessness on himself. That's why he sweats blood in Gethsemane, why he stumbles with exhaustion as he carries a cross, why he writhes in agony as he is nailed to a cross at the place of the skull. There is no rest for those who turn away from God, and as he bears the sin and restlessness of the world in himself, he cries out as he is separated from the Father for the first time in all eternity. He cries in tortured agony, but finally cries, it is finished. Rest is possible now. The seventh day arrives as he rises from the dead. And as we trust in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, notice that he's seated now. Rest really is possible for you and for me, for our freneticism, our striving. The constant striving under the living can be undercut as we hear him say of us in grace, It's good. It's good. It's very good. You're good. I've got you. We can hear it said of us. We might allow him to say it of us. You are my child whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Rest here. Come here. Stay a while. Everything's ready. So what does it look like for you. Let me be quick about this. I'm going to be practical and quick at the end here. Don't know how long I've gone over. And what does this look like for you? But I'm frenetic, am I? I'm striving. I'm wanting to get everything in. I'm convicted myself very much as I, as I um, read this myself. What does this look like for you? Um, the basis of these are from an old Tim Keller sermon. He's um, a, a, a pastor in New York, a retired one. So let me say three things, okay? Um, the first, there's only one place to begin. Let the Lord of rest lead you to the rest of the Lord. 
Let the Lord of rest lead you to the rest of the Lord. You must begin here. We must start here. This is only one place to begin. Anywhere else won't quite work. By fulfilling the Sabbath, we don't have to know the hundreds and thousands of things we can and can't do from the Old Testament and beyond. And yet he doesn't do away with the Sabbath. He actually speaks as if it will continue on just in a different way. It's now an invitation. It's something beautiful. It's something kind of welcoming. And so we need guidance. We need to start with the Lord of rest. We need to go to him. What does it look like for me to, to rest in my situation today? Sabbath is more than not working or going on vacation. It's actually engaging the Lord of rest, believing that he is the Lord of rest and that only he can lead you to that deep rest. Second, so that's the first thing. There's only one place to begin. Let the Lord of rest lead you to the rest of the Lord. Second, there are two inner switches. The next level is this. You need two postures, so to speak. One is to switch off and one is to switch on. To switch off, we need to see Sabbath as resistance. This is the name of a book by um, a scholar called Walter Brueggemann. Sabbath is rebellious freedom. Those rebels out there, any rebels, right? Sabbath is like really rebellious and kind of hardcore and countercultural. Slaves don't have a day off. You don't rest. You're a slave to the thing that you are doing. Rest is an act of freedom. My work does not define me. Christ does. Not how many customers I have, how much money I have, how much I study and learn, what grade I get. I'm switching off today because um, from what I am tempted to use to define me because I'm no longer a slave. Secondly, that's to switch off. This is to switch on. We need to see Sabbath as trust. We need to switch on to this reality. Sabbath points to God's work and God's rest, which means that, thank the Lord, we are not God. We do not need to keep the world running, and actually resting helps us to kind of be reminded of that. In fact, taking time off reminds us that we are not in control. We are not God, and so we can trust him. So those have two postures, to switch off with resistance and to switch on with trust. So there are three that's one, and then two, and then three. There are three outer dimensions, okay? Three D, three things that you need to uh, balance with your Sabbath time. And I, he I hear the, the, the have to there, but I'm inviting you to this. A balance between the three Ds. Differentiated time, deep time, and downtime. Okay? Differentiated time. You need a period of time, a chunk of time, something more than an hour or two every so often. There's a difference between getting eight hours of sleep straight at night and having eight one-hour sleeps in the day. This differentiated time must be different from what you do the rest of the week. If you're a lifeguard, sorry, but don't go to the beach. If you're a fisherman, don't go fishing. But if you're not either of those things, go fishing and go to the beach. Enjoy creation. Do something that's different from what you are doing the rest of the week. So that's differentiated time. Deep time. There has to be a level of depth that goes beyond just doing leisure things. It needs to have moments of worship or contemplation of the Lord, of the Lord of the Sabbath, not just um, smashing a whole series um, of Netflix, because we need depth enough to retell the story of who we are. And then downtime. Finally, there needs to be downtime too. Some unstructured, unplanned time where you can just be. You need to work this out with spouse or family. Perhaps if you care for others, you have responsibilities, then you have to overlap 
uh, your Sabbath with your partner or, or, or uh, someone else. Perhaps you figure out in community how to do this well with others who are in your stage of life or in the same line of work. How do you do this in community? How do we do this as you know, a stay-at-home mum or doing a PhD or um, uh, working um, um, in the office? So there's one place to start. Let the Lord of the Sabbath lead you to the, 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 the Sabbath of the Lord. Uh, secondly, turn on and off. And then thirdly, get this balance. Try and um, figure out how to slot these in, uh, that differentiated time, that downtime. And what was that other one? Deep time as well. So let the Lord of rest lead you. He welcomes you. He invites you. He offers this to you. I hope you don't hear this as a burdensome thing, as a way in which um, it's another thing added on, but you hear the welcome and invitation um, of a God who runs out to meet you, who says um, that you're loved, the party is there, he's taken on the cost, he's taken the fattened calf and, and killed it, he's going to give you um, what you need. Let the Lord of rest lead you to the rest of the Lord, the rest that only he can bring. So let's have a moment of quiet, let's be still, I've said a lot here. Lead us, Lord Jesus. We, of our own accord, are, are frenetic, are contemptuous, are self-loathing, are struggling uh, with, with the pace of life, the freneticism of, of it all. The season is hard. Help us to know what it is to, to come to you first, to start with you, to allow you to define uh, what rest is. Have you shift um, in our souls uh, something that undercuts uh, that freneticism, that striving, that relentlessness that makes us to keep doing? Allow us to, to look to you, to find rest ultimately in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've taken on our restlessness and shown us a new way. You offer us a new way. Help us to see that invitation today. In Jesus' name.